I want to go ahead and get into God's Word. And so if you'll join me, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to put it on the screen in a minute when I read this section, but it's good to have your Bible open and reading it on your own, uh, electronic or hard copy. All are good. I also want to, before I get started, I forgot to just make reference to our offering, and, and many of you do give online, but we don't want to just kind of slip over that. Our offering and our giving is an expression of our worship to Jesus. It's, it's one of the ways in which our love for God flows out of us, and it's through our giving to the local church. And so uh, if you're giving online, thank you for doing that. Make sure that you're viewing that as, a, as, a, as a, uh, an act of worship. But if you, if you do give physically and you want to drop it in the box, you can do that as you leave today. Thanks. On January 13, 1984, Ronald Reagan was president and he issued a proclamation. And that proclamation designated January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It was, in, it, was, it was a proclamation recognizing that January 22, 1973 was the day the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion in all 50 states. So churches have traditionally, around the United States, used this day and it's always as close to you can get to the 22nd. Some churches will celebrate it on January 17th today. Some will be doing it next week. Not all churches will recognize it. We have traditionally done so. Churches around the United States will use this day to celebrate God's good gift of life, to commemorate the many lives that have been lost to the, atrocious, to the atrocity of abortion, and to commit themselves to protecting human life at every stage. That's the purpose of the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. There are many churches, undoubtedly, who probably are steering away from this, even particularly now, given the cultural climate that we find ourselves in. It is and has been a controversial topic. Here's the challenge that I, I face as the one who's preaching, and be thankful that you're not. <laughs> the challenge that I face are that I face, there are actually numerous challenges. Undoubtedly, some of you will listen to this message and say, he didn't say enough. He hasn't said enough. Some of you will listen to this message and say, oh, he said too much. May God have mercy on me. And you. We're casting ourselves upon his mercy. Now let me make, as you cast yourselves upon God's mercy, let me take care of a technical difficulty I'm having. My iPad wants to keep shutting off. <laughs> That's not good. Not when you're trying to look at it. All right. 
there's one other category of people that are saying something right now. And I, I would say I want to pastor this category of people as powerfully as I possibly can. It's not those who are saying he hasn't said enough. It's not those who are saying that he said too much. It's those that are saying, oh no. Did I come to church on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? Did I turn this service on? Oh no, I'm hurting. Every Sunday, since we've recognized the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I, in at least the last few years, I meet with a woman or a man who has participated in an abortion. Last year at this time, a woman came up to me in tears telling me that she had had three abortions. You're sitting here now. And maybe you're asking, how long do I have to feel this pain? How long do I have to argue with myself? How long do I have to feel this sorrow, this shame, this regret? The psalmist asked those questions. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And he always... He always turns those questions by concluding with an awareness of the steadfast love of God and the mercy of God for sinners. And he turns to a place where he can say, my heart, even though I feel this way, my heart's going to rejoice in the salvation of God. And so, if you are here and you're one who's saying, oh no, oh, this is surfacing all kinds of things that I don't want to feel, I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus, friend of sinners, everyone that's in this room, downstairs, at home, that, that has turned to follow Jesus, knows him as one that forgives and covers all sin all sin. So, so there's, nothing, there's nothing about this particular sin that Jesus' blood cannot cover. And the Lord wants you to know that this morning. He wants you to know that. He wants you to, to live in the good of that so that you could say, even though sometimes I feel this way, but I will trust in the steadfast love of the Lord and the salvation that He alone can bring. Amen. The psalmist ends by saying, sing, sing to the Lord of your salvation. Sinners who are forgiven are now able to sing because the Lord has done great things. If you are someone that's here that's put your hope in Jesus but, uh, and, and, and maybe had an abortion in the past and you feel like it surfaces all of these doubts and lies, then what I want to offer you is what, the, is what the Scripture offers you, a shield, a shield of hope. We have this hope. The enemy may throw fiery darts, but we have this hope of salvation. And when we are distressed of soul, 
when we are tempted, when the enemy lies, when you feel those lives surfacing within, we hold up that shield of hope. Amen? Raise your shield of hope and repel, repel the temptation of distress. We should mourn over the abortion industry's existence. We should mourn its continuous assault on women and their unborn children. But we should also, the continual drop in the abortion rate should encourage us and should encourage us to press forward as Christians. I've asked you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at, at four verses, verses 13 through 16. In my Bible, there's a heading over those verses. It says, let the children come to me, and that's the title of this morning's sermon. Mark chapter 10. Read it with me. Uh, you can read it silently, but I'll read it. Follow along, and let's allow the Spirit of God to speak to us from the truth of His Word, and may He pin it, its truth upon our hearts. The Scripture reads, And they were bringing children to Him. Him is Jesus. That He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, because we haven't been studying Mark, I want to sensitize you to a few things. Mark was, was, not a, he was a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the 12. He got his account that he recorded and wrote from Peter. So he was a friend of Peter's. He was, a, he was, a, he was a, a younger man than Peter and learned much of what he learned from Peter, and then he recorded this gospel account. So in some ways you might say this is Peter's gospel account, but Mark is the one that put it anointed by the Holy Spirit to, to word. Now what Mark has done, if you, if, if you were to look at the, the, the context here, and it's important to un understand the context, he is just prior to this recording an incident where Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the religious goody-two-shoes, religious leaders of the day, and Jesus is having a lot of arguments with them in any gospel account you read. But he's, Mark has just recorded an incident that reveals the unbiblical thinking of the Pharisees. Now, what's astonishing about that is that the Pharisees were religious leaders. They had memorized significant portions of the Scripture in that day, the Old Testament, and, and so they should have known better. 
should have known their Bibles, but Jesus reveals how unbiblical they are in their thinking. The topic was divorce, and the problem was this. They were wanting to culturally to, to, to live in a culture and a society that made it easy for divorce. And so they were seeking to clarify with Jesus, hey, Moses said you can, your husband can give his wife a certificate of divorce, didn't he? And Jesus reveals how unbiblical their thinking is by sharing God's heart on marriage. So the thinking of the world has seeped into the thinking of the religious leaders. It was becoming easy and prevalent in that society just as it is in ours, and that's not God's heart. Jesus told him to, told him so. It's bad when the people of God begin to resemble the world. And when I talk about the world, I'm talking about everything in opposition to the kingdom of God. That's bad when we start to look the same. Now Mark records another story of, I love how Sinclair Ferguson uses this phrase, of spiritually narrowed heart arteries. So truth is trying to get in, but it can't because the arteries of your heart are so narrow. Only this story, this incident, isn't the Pharisees. Who's it with? The disciples. It's scripture says he rebuked his disciples. The culprits are the disciples. That's why Jesus has warned his disciples just one chapter, two chapters before this, he told them to watch out. And then he gave a very vivid illustration of what they were to watch out for. The yeast of the Pharisees. He told them to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, how many of you have ever bought a pack of yeast or used a packet of yeast? Sensitive, look, is anybody? Nobody? Okay. So some of you know what yeast is, right? And a lot of you don't. And you should. You should go home tonight on your way home, stop at the supermarket, and buy a pack of yeast, even if you don't use it. Because you should understand what yeast is, or you won't understand the Bible. What yeast does, and it's amazing, I am no cook. My wife will tell you. My family will tell you. I make a mean egg and cheese fried egg sandwich. That's, that's it, though. That's the extent of my culinary repertoire. But I have used yeast, and I've seen yeast used, and yeast is an amazing thing. Because if you mix up all the flour and, and you create dough to make bread, but you don't add just a little tiny packet of this stuff, you will not get a loaf of bread. You will get what we refer to in our family as brick bread. You will get a, a loaf a brick. If God hadn't made yeast, all of life would be brick bread and crackers. 
But God has made yeast, and yeast is this amazing little thing that you just drop a little bit in, and it changes the whole nature of the, of the thing. So it only takes a little yeast. So, so Jesus says, watch out for this little bit of yeast. The thinking of the Pharisees, the thinking of the world, we've got to watch out for that because it has this infiltrating effect. The thinking of the world, the world in opposition to Jesus, has this infiltrating effect upon all of us. It's hardly, it changes the nature of everything, but it's hardly recognizable at the cellular level. Thinking like this functions like yeast. It works into the very structure and then it completely changes the nature and the essence of the thing. The world tells us that half a poison pill won't kill you. And it's true. It won't. But if you take it every day over time, it will build up in your system and have damaging effects. So Jesus is telling us to watch out for that. We got to watch out that the, the air we breathe doesn't seep in and transform us unknowingly. How have you allowed, church, the thinking of the world in opposition to Jesus to subtly infiltrate your mind? All of us are having to fight that. That's why Jesus said, watch out. Even disciples aren't inoculated to the effect of the yeast of the world. This is why the truth of God's word is what must govern us. This is why we have to look at life through the lens of Scripture. That's harder than you think. Because we bring, oftentimes we think we're looking through the lens of Scripture, but what we're really doing is putting Scripture through another lens. It's very challenging to do, to, to just purely allow Scripture to influence us. Because we bring our ideologies, we bring our systematics, we bring our our life experiences to the scripture. And that's why we have to say, Lord, Spirit of God, open my eyes so that I would see what you would want me to see. All right, let's move on. What's happening here? Some parents were bringing their kids to Jesus so that he would bless them, just like people in that day would have brought their kids to the rabbi, the priest of the day. They would have brought them there to the religious leader to experience blessing. And Jesus is moved by the fact that these parents have so trusted him, have so seen something in him, 
that they wanted him to pray for their kids and to bless them. It was an expression of his grace and their trust in him, their confidence in him. What we learn, though, is that as they were trying to do that, a group of people actually circled Jesus to stop them. And that group of people were his closest friends, the disciples. Whoa. No, you can't get to Jesus. You can't bring your kids to Jesus because he got too much going on. He can't be burdened by, by the lower members of society. So no, you can't have access to Jesus, not while we're on the job. Culturally, you must understand this, church. It's not true in our society. Culturally, children that are born are esteemed in our society. They weren't back in the ancient Near East at Jesus' time. So what Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing is very countercultural. The disciples were, who do these parents think they are bringing all these kids around Jesus? He's got big and important things to do and he's got to spend time with important people. The truth is, this was the attitude of the disciples, but not the attitude of Jesus. And that's why it says that Jesus was indignant when he saw this was happening. He was indignant, the scripture says. What does that mean? He was greatly afflicted by it. He was greatly distressed by the action of the disciples. He was very displeased. The Greek word, I was looking at it, says agonakteo. It sounds like agony. He's in agony over the way his disciples are acting. He's actually angry with them. That's why he rebukes them. That's strong language. Anger is what he felt in the story before towards the disciples or towards the Pharisees. Now he's showing anger towards the disciples. Why is he so indignant? Because his disciples were doing the same thing that the, that the Pharisees were doing. That, and he was opposed to them in that. And he's opposed to the disciples. What are they doing? They're misrepresenting who God is. They're misrepresenting the character of God. They're distorting his grace. They were saying by their actions that Jesus has no time for kids. No time for those that society doesn't esteem. And it was a complete distortion of the character of God. This is why he's indignant. When followers of Jesus distort Jesus' character, God has a look on his face. So the question is, how does this text connect to the sanctity of human life? That's what you should be asking. How does this text and what's happening here with the disciples connect to the sanctity of human life? 
Here's the point of this text. The point of this sermon, the point of this text, I believe Mark's point is the mercy of God extends to all people. The mercy of God extends to all people. Now, important clause. I'm going to add something to this. The mercy of God does extend to all people, including those who are not esteemed in society. That's it. That's it. That, that's right. It's right there. The mercy of God extends to everyone. That's what I was just preaching to those who feel like they've, been, they've sinned in a way that's too great for God to forgive. The mercy of God extends to everyone. It extends to you. It extends to everyone, including those that are not esteemed in society. So as a very vivid illustration and a deliberate example, Jesus demonstrates this by loving children who were not esteemed in society. See, the world has all kinds of ways of assessing worth. You know that. IQ. Sophistication. Your physical abilities or talents. Your physical beauty. Popularity. Number of Instagram followers. Your skin color. Your education. Your wealth the size of your home. The world has all kinds of ways of assessing significance and worth. You felt it. You know what it's like to look down the line and, and try to determine where your worth is. You, you know what that feels like because the world has definitions of what is worthy and what's not. But the 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 world's ways of assessing worth are not the scale God uses to measure significance and worth. Because Jesus welcomes everyone into his presence. You see this? Who or what determines worth? I have a close friend who would not consider themselves a Christian. Uh, a younger man who just recently got married and and uh his wife got pregnant and they were expecting their first child and he was so excited one day when i saw him and he told me that he wanted me to see something and he took out you know that long piece of paper that you get when you have an ultrasound piece of paper with a black and white picture. And he introduced me to his daughter. And then he said this to me. He said, you know what? My entire life I would have characterized myself as pro-choice. But in a moment, I've become pro-life. So I said, what changed? Sometimes you've got to ask the obvious. 
I said, what changed? And he said, I want this child. This is my daughter. She's alive and I love her. Here's my question, though. Is human worth measured by want? Jesus doesn't measure it that way. Is an unborn child's worth determined by whether they're wanted or not? Here's the claim. Every follower of Jesus needs to search their heart regarding human beings who are ill-regarded in the prevailing cultural environment. We have to do that as Christians. Every follower of Jesus needs to search his heart about the ways in which fellow human beings are being treated. The application for sanctity of human life goes like this. Every follower of Jesus needs to search his heart regarding the issue of abortion and the ways that the unborn are being treated in abortion clinics, the ways that the unborn are, their value is being regarded. And it's not according to the scales that God uses, but according to the scales that the world uses to determine significance and worth, and we all are breathing that in. The kingdom of God opposes the ill treatment of human beings according to ethnic, racial, social categories, and conditions. So you might say the kingdom of God opposes profiling. Every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has innate dignity. Every human being is made in the image of God and must not be undervalued. How does that happen? How would people begin to undervalue what God prizes? Yeast. It's the little thinking of the world. A little yeast here, a little yeast there. And it infiltrates. A little bit of the world's thinking, a little dose every day over time, and we get conformed into the, to the pattern of the world, which is why Paul wrote in Romans, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? It's through the scriptures. When I was younger, I took a, a job at a dog kennel. I think I've, you guys have heard my dog kennel stories before. They're great illustrations. But when I took a job in this dog kennel, it was a man who owned, it was just a private, uh, he was a lawyer in Westchester, and he owned 75 Irish wolfhounds. Go home and look them up. They're the biggest dog. They're the biggest, the largest breed of dog. They're the tallest. He had 75 of these things, and he used teenage guys from the local school to actually take care of them. 
So he has, and he bred them, and he showed them. He was, he was, was world-renowned for his breeding. He won the Westminster Kennel Club dog show regularly with these Irish wolfhounds. The first day when I went to that job, I worked there from 3 to 5. That's what we did. We did like a little shift after school, 3 to 5. When I got home, when I got into my dad's car, he picked me up, the smell of that dog kennel had so attached itself to my clothes that the whole car reeked. When I got home, my mom, I walked in the door and she said, no way, go drive a nail on the outside of our house, on our porch, and do not ever come in here with those clothes on. And if I brought clothes on, you could smell it in the whole of our rancher home. The smell of that dog kennel was potent. But something happened over time. I got used to the smell. I couldn't smell it anymore. But my family could still smell it. Now, even over time, I worked there for long enough that they lost their ability to detect it as strongly as they did that first time. You can get used to anything if you breathe it in long enough. This is the illustration of the yeast, church. Every day we need to be reminded of truth. We've got to hang our old clothes outside. Take a bath in God's Word. Allow Jesus to get you right so you don't subtly drift from the truth. A vivid illustration of this. There was a book written a few years ago. Some of you may be aware of it. My guess is Tamara is likely aware of it. Tamara's going to be sharing. She's from Chester County Women's Services. She's going to be sharing with us in a few minutes. There's a book written by a man named Willie Parker. Title, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. One part autobiography, one part political manifesto for the legality and even the goodness of abortion. Check this, guys. Christian. Born again, identifies himself as a born again follower of Jesus. He's an abortion doctor and he'll tell you he's not ashamed of that. His book details why Jesus would support his abortion practice. He writes about faith and he quotes all the people that we love. C.S. Lewis. He writes with a chilling description of how he would go to Planned Parenthood clinics 
and as a doctor perform abortions over and over and over and over again, just like a basketball player shooting a three-pointer. This is his language. There is a nonchalance in his metaphors. He would say to you, are you squeamish when you see ultrasound images or, or sonographic images of children being aborted? Does that make you squeamish? Do you find yourself agreeing that life begins at conception and that abortion is tragic? Well, then what he says to you is repent and believe in the wonders of reproductive choice. This is right out of his book. It's yeast. It's yeast that's seeped in to his thinking and so distorted his view that he can write a book like this. In reading about it, one, one person who was commenting on it quoted Wendell Berry, who is a a famous poet. And Wendell Berry said this. He says, the giveaway is that even scientists don't speak of their loved ones in categorical terms. Are you tracking that? So scientists don't speak of the people that they love in categorical terms. They don't refer, I don't refer to my wife as woman or my daughter as child. Or a case. Affection requires us to break out of the abstractions, the categories, and confront the creature itself in its life, in its place. We know enough of our own history by now to be aware that people exploit what they have merely concluded to be of value, but we defend what we love. It all turns on affection. Willie Parker has so continuously worked in the dog kennel of lies that he doesn't know that in the nostrils of God, his behavior stinks. Now, God will have mercy on Willie Parker. But he is indignant, just like Jesus was indignant when those who are not esteemed in society are not offered the mercy of God. The mercy of God extends to all people, including those who are not esteemed in a society. Church, are you, are you taking that in? That's biblical truth. But here's the question. Who would Jesus abort? Who would Jesus abort? Let me end by, before I bring Claire and Tamara up, let me say this. Because I think this is at the heart of this passage, and to not say this would be to miss a crucial truth in this passage. 
Jesus says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's an important point. What would it require for someone to be forgiven of their sins? Simple faith of a child. The faith of a child, what is it? It's a simplistic and total trust in Jesus. This is what children, this is, is at the center of a child's existence is total trust. That's why violating that trust is so horrific. Because kids trust. And Jesus is saying their trust, the kind of trust of a child that a child has in their parents is the kind of trust that he wants from his followers. It's a simplistic, total trust in Jesus. Trust is at the center of life as a child, so it must be at the center of life for a disciple of Jesus. You can't earn faith. You can't deserve faith. You can't construct faith. You can only accept faith as God's gift, like a child. And when you do that, you begin to drink in truth. And the truth that you drink in is often at odds with the world. If the mercy of God extends to all people, including those who are not esteemed in society, then what should we do? If the mercy of God extends to all people, including the unborn, then what should we do? One thing we can do. One thing we can do is actively support those who are on the front lines in this fight. Local pregnancy centers like Chester County Women's Services are on the front lines of this battle in ways that many of us are not. They're fighting to help women with unwanted pregnancies to make life-affirming choices, right? That's the vision and the mission. We want to hear from Tamara. We've been in support of this organization for many years now. And we're going to continue in our support. We thought it would be good for you to hear from Tamara. She's the program director at Chester County Women's Services. We want to hear about the work they're doing and how we continue, how we can continue to help. But first, I want to invite Claire Turner. Is Claire in here? There she is. Come on up, Claire. Claire is a BGC partner, and she's, on, she's a member of the board at Chester County Women's Services. And we thought it would be good for her to introduce Tamara to all of us. So come on up, Claire, and let's welcome Claire as she comes. Thank you. Thank you. 